After these things had been done, the leaders approached me and said, The people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, have not separated themselves from the surrounding peoples and their detestable practices. When I heard this report, I tore my tunic and robe, pulled out some of the hair from my head and beard, and sat down, devastated. Last week, we heard about a celebration. Last week in Ezra chapter 8, we heard about Ezra and his companions traveling 900 miles from Persia to Jerusalem, carrying this enormous amount of wealth, and through all the obstacles, God protected them. Because of that, they threw this enormous party to celebrate God's goodness to them. But our passage this morning starts off on a completely different tone. It's one of mourning and grief, shock and sadness. What happened? How do you get from a party to to this? Well, good morning. Uh, Welcome to PBC. Let me add my welcome. My name is Paul. I'm One of the pastors here, if this is your first time here, we don't normally tear our clothes on a Sunday morning. It's kind of a special thing. Um, If you're new or if you haven't been with us in a while, we're we're, we're in the middle of this series on the book of Ezra. It's called Return and Rebuild. We've been following this community of Jews who are coming back from exile in Persia to Jerusalem. And we've seen them uh, return to their homeland. We've seen them rebuild the temple. At this point, the temple has been rebuilt. And over the course of their story, we've watched them encounter a lot of different obstacles. We've seen them have challenges with the building. We've seen them have external opposition. What we see this morning is a new kind of obstacle, one that comes from within their community. And as Ezra encounters this challenge, we're going to see his response, and we're going to learn something about God from how he responds. Because Ezra's going to turn to God in prayer, and the way that he prays is going to help us to see that Ezra knew something about God that we need to know and remember. We're going to have this powerful picture of how deeply Ezra understood that our God is a mountain of mercy. Now, as the people are coming back 
into the land, they face all of these challenges, and then this event happens. Ezra receives this disappointing report. The reason it, it affects him so deeply is not just for the event, but it's because this is one more failure in a long series of failures of God's people. See, over and over and over again, it seems like God's people just can't get it right. Why do they keep making the same mistakes? It's really special to celebrate a family dedication to to pray and to to ask God to bless us as a community and and the families and to, to ask that God would lead forward, but, but it, it raises this question of what do we hope for for the next generation? See, some people think that, that, that the world is gradually getting better, that, that each successive generation learns something, fixes a problem, and eventually will kind of arrive at this enlightened society. But it, it doesn't take a whole lot of looking around to realize how naive that view is. One generation fixes one issue and causes 10 more. And it seems like as people move through history, we just keep hitting the same things of oppression and violence, prejudice, sin, brokenness. So what is our hope? How can we confidently pray for the next generation? By watching Ezra this morning, we're going to get a glimpse into that. We're going to understand that what he knew about God is going to give us that confidence to know that his purposes will carry forward. So we're looking at Ezra chapter 9, and what we're going to see first is this report that Ezra receives. We'll we'll think a little more about what was in that report. Then we're going to see the physical display of emotion that Ezra reacted with. And finally, we'll turn to the largest part of the passage, which is his prayer to God. And in that, we'll see him pour out his heart, and we'll find out that that critical piece of information that helps us to know who God is. So the story begins with a report. Here's Ezra 9. I'll read verses 1 to 2. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. The passage begins saying, after these things. Well, that reminded us that last week we saw Ezra's journey to Jerusalem and we heard about this party We know from a few verses later on that this was probably about four months after those events. So Ezra has been there with his companions that long. He's been getting settled, figuring out what's going on. And then he receives this 
report. The report that the people have not separated themselves from the local peoples. Specifically, the issue that they have intermarried with peoples of different national backgrounds. Now, to our ears, this sounds a little bit odd. It kind of feels like, what's, what's the big deal? We have, we have to think a little bit to understand why this was so significant for Ezra. I remember the first time that one of my children told me no. As a young parent, you're sent home with a child, a, this infant from the hospital, and you quickly realize that their very survival depends on you. You need to feed them. You need to make sure they sleep. You need to change them. Everything about their life is hinged upon your doing your job well. And so I remember the first time that, that, that I, I told my child, and you know, they, they'd grown up and they, they start to talk and, and they find this word quickly. And I remember the first time I said something, my daughter said, no. And I thought, what is going on? Do you not understand that you'd be dead if I didn't feed you? That everything about your life at this point is dependent upon me. That you have no hope of survival if I fall derelict in my duties. And yet somehow you think the wisest course of action in this particular moment is to reject me. It's, it's kind of just astounding. And what's happening in that moment, it's really powerful without completely over-dramatizing it. What's, what's going on is that the, the nature of the parent-child relationship, that the parent is responsible for looking out for the well-being, the survival of this infant, the nature of that relationship is being torn apart by one simple syllable. So what Ezra's concerned about here in this moment is that he realizes that once again, God's people have turned to their creator, to the being whose very existence depends on him. They have turned to him and said, no. See, God told his people early on why marrying foreigners was so dangerous for them at that time. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 to 4. God says this, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So see, here's the issue. They would turn away your sons from following me. The problem is not in the marrying of foreigners. The problem is that in that act, the very likely consequence of that act is that they would break their relationship with the living God. And that is a dangerous thing to happen. That is the tragedy. Now God's people find themselves in their land. 
They were removed from their land in the first place because they had chosen idols over the living God. And so God sent them to exile as a way of disciplining them so that they could return with a new mindset. Now they're back in the land. Now they have rebuilt the temple. But once again, they have done something that threatens to pull their hearts away from God. And Ezra realizes that if that happens, what does it matter if they're living in Jerusalem? The land doesn't matter. What does it matter if there's a temple built? The building doesn't matter. If they lose their relationship with the living God, all of that goes to waste. Everything that they've worked for is threatened by this action. Well, for us then, the question comes to us to say, what are those things for us in our culture, in in the world around us that, that threaten our relationship with God? What are those things that we might do that aren't so bad in and of themselves, except that they draw us to turn our hearts away from God? They threaten to fracture that relationship that we have. The question for us is, what distracts you from God? I think a lot of us can relate to the Jews living in Jerusalem. Remember that these people had, had been born in Persia, in exile, and they knew that wasn't their home. But now they've made this dangerous journey to Jerusalem. Now they're living here, a, a land they're not familiar with, among peoples they don't know. And so it makes sense to me that the easy path for them would be to try to blend in, would be to try to to acclimate themselves to the people around them. That would always be the temptation. It's hard to stand out. It's hard to be different. It would be easier for them to just learn and live like everyone else around them. It's a temptation we all face. It's difficult to be the only one living by a set of values. It's difficult to stand out from the crowd. It's interesting here that the the particular issue they face is one of romance and sexuality. That, over the history of the Old Testament, tends to be one of the issues that repeatedly trips up God's people. In fact, in Leviticus 18, there's a list of 18 things that could lead God's people to turn away from God, 17 of the 18 have to do with sex. See, this sexual romantic relationship that God has given for us is something that I believe is given to help us experience a taste of the intimacy that we could have with our creator. And because of that, it's a powerful thing within our hearts. But because it's so powerful, it can be dangerous as well. It can be used to to draw us towards other gods rather than the true God. If you look around in our culture, it's no different. There is so much sexual brokenness in our culture. Ask 10 people to describe the sexual brokenness in our community, and you will have an enormous range of answers. They may not agree on what is broken, 
But everybody would say that there is sexual brokenness all around us. Those are some of the things that pull our hearts away from God. What is it for you? What distracts you from God? Well, Ezra has heard this report about the Jews in Jerusalem. He realizes that they are in a precarious place. It's dangerous what they've decided to do. And so because of that, he reacts deeply to the news. Listen again to the reaction in verses 3 to 5. He says, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garments and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garments and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. His reaction is this powerful, emotional display to the people around him. This is what I tried to model for you because just hearing it read isn't the same as seeing it, as seeing and hearing the clothes being torn. This is what I did. I literally sat appalled, right? Get it? Because my name, okay. We had to change the uh, version we read in the beginning because we thought it wasn't the right, the right time for humor, you know, in the middle of the drama. So what Ezra did is he, he engaged in this emotional display. But what's fascinating about it is the effect that it has on the people around him. See, he starts off with something very personal. But then the next thing that happens is that others are drawn to him. We hear about this crowd. They are the ones who uh, trembled at the words of God. These are people who probably realized that something was wrong in the community, but they hadn't said anything. They hadn't reacted to it. But when Ezra reacts, it's like his reaction unlocks the freedom for them to mourn as well. See, this is interesting to me because I think this is probably how the problem started in the first place. We tend to gauge our reactions to things based on how the people around us are reacting. So probably the first person, they're back in Jerusalem, and and the first person, someone decides, I'm going to marry an Amorite. And they do. And they look around, and nobody says anything. All right. Well, the next person says, okay, then I'm going to marry a Hittite. And they do that, and they look around. Nobody seems to care. So the next person says, all right, well, I'm going to marry an Egyptian. And step by step, because nobody reacts, the whole culture of the community is changed. Until Ezra reacts. He sees what's happening and he mourns. He grieves the brokenness of his community. And when he does that, 
He gives permission for others to do that as well. And so they start to come around him, those who trembled at the words of God. So he modeled a kind of grief, and he reversed the course of that effect so that because he took sin seriously, the community began to change in the other direction. That's one of the things we can learn from Ezra. He saw brokenness around him, and he took it seriously. And there are times where we need to take sin seriously. Now, when I say that, my concern is that sometimes we might hear that and think, okay, I really need to be more judgmental. I really need to judge people around me more harshly. I've been too soft on people. And that's not what I'm getting at. In fact, I think Ezra can be our model for what it looks like to take sin seriously. The first thing he does is not to to challenge the people around him or to get angry or to get frustrated or to to appear self-righteous. The first thing he does is simply to be overwhelmed with the brokenness of what he sees. And I resonate with that because if you look around at our world, if you look around at the things that are happening, if you look deeply within my heart, you see such brokenness and it just seems like the only thing to do is just to, to just be overwhelmed by it. To admit that it seems insurmountable. To grieve that. And in Ezra's mourning, I think it can unlock something for us. To just simply be sad at the state of the world, at the state of our communities, at the state of our own hearts. So Ezra does this. He mourns publicly. People gather around him. And then we are told at the time of the evening sacrifice, he stands up. That, that's about 3 p.m. It's the time when other people would be coming to where Ezra was for the kind of communal events of the evening. And so now he has this group there and he prays. He pours himself out to God. This is how the prayer begins, Ezra 9, verses 6 to 7. He says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. What amazes me about the way he starts his prayer is that he begins saying, I. He says, I am ashamed. I can't even bear to look at you, God, because I'm so guilty. But immediately he he transitions to say, our sins. Our sins are higher than the heavens. Ezra owns the sins of his community, even though he didn't do anything wrong even though they weren't his mistakes. And that amazes me because it's the opposite of what I do. See, when somebody challenges me and says, hey, Paul, you know, I I think you might have done this. It hurt my feelings. I got upset, whatever. My first instinct is always to defend myself, 
to deflect, to, oh, you don't understand. Let me explain. This is what I was thinking. My first instinct is always to, to cast aside the guilt. Ezra steps into the path of the guilt. He owns the sin of his community. It's the opposite of defensiveness. He brings that to God and he says, you've been good to us, but we haven't responded in kind. This is what he says in verse 8. He says, but now for a brief moment, he's talking about the return from exile, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. See, Ezra says, you have given us this thing. You have brought us back from exile. The word for secure hold there is literally a, a tent peg. It's something the Israelites would have been familiar with after their journey around the desert. He says, you have secured us in place. You've given us solidity. And yet, we still turn away from you. That's why he's so incredulous when he gets to verse 10. He says, and now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. no excuses. There's no defense. There's no explanation. It's just, what do we say, God? Once again, we've rejected your commandments. Even after you brought us back from exile, even after you've been good to us, even after you protected us, even after you helped us to build the temple, Successfully, even after, even after, again and again, one more time, we've turned our backs on you. And so he concludes in complete humility. Verse 15, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is to today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt for none can stand before you because of this. None can stand before you. It's a complete confession. He lays himself bare. When was the last time that you <clears throat> challenged somebody? Maybe there was an issue and you, you needed to talk to them about something and you said, hey, this, this happened, I, you know, I was upset and and they said, what do I say? You're 100% right. I'm completely in the wrong. Please forgive me. I can't even stand before you. It doesn't happen that often, does it? <laughs> That's not the kind of reaction that we usually get from other people. It's also not the kind of reaction God usually gets. I mean, Israel is known as a stiff-necked people. They are able to teach a master class in being defensive, in shirking their sin, in casting it aside. And yet Ezra owns it completely. How does he have the courage to do that? How does Ezra have the courage 
to just lay himself bare before God. Well, remember that when we met Ezra, we heard something about him. We heard that he set his heart to study the law. So Ezra knew God as God has revealed himself in the scriptures. Because of that, then, Ezra would have known how God has responded to these kinds of things in the past. And in fact, centuries earlier, something similar had happened. This was after God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He'd taken them out of Egypt. He was leading them now to the promised land. This was the first time around. And his prophet Moses had gone up on the mountain to meet with God. While Moses was up there, the people decided, we don't believe in God anymore. They made a golden calf and they bowed down and worshiped this false idol. In the aftermath of that event, that rejection, this is how God describes himself. Exodus 34, 6 to 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In light of this rejection, God describes himself as merciful and gracious. Not that he ignores sin, he holds sin accountable. But his very nature, at the core of who God is, is to forgive. We are told that God is slow to anger, that he is patient with his people to discipline them, to chastise them. But when they come to him in repentance... Mercy is immediate. There's no delay. Because that is what's at God's core. Ezra says that their guilt is piled high. That it goes up to the mountains. But Ezra knew about God that his mercy was higher. That God is a mountain of mercy. And because of that, he's able to to throw himself on God. This is the model that I want for us to learn from this morning. That when we are overwhelmed with the brokenness of the world or our own brokenness, when we make a mistake that we've made before another time, we can always trust God's mercy. Trust God's mercy. I think that's hard for us to do, a lot of us. Mercy is not something that we encounter regularly in our lives. It feels unnatural. Sometimes we encounter forgiveness in our relationships, and that when that happens, it's powerful. But when that happens, when, when we're able to forgive each other and show each other mercy, it happens because because we're, we're trying to do that. We, we have to work at being non-defensive. We have to put ourselves in another's position. We have to understand it from their viewpoints. And, and then with the help of God, we can extend mercy to each other. But that's not true for God. Mercy flows from him naturally. 
It's the most normal thing for him to do. The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful. This is who God is. Do you know that? Do you know the mercy of God in your life? Do you believe it? Do you experience it? No matter how broken we are, no matter our mistakes, no matter our past, no matter whatever goes on in our hearts and our minds, all of our brokenness is finite. It's all of limited term. God's mercy is infinite. If God's mercy were an ocean, you could not swim to the bottom of it. If it were a tree, you could not climb to the top of it. If God's mercy were a path, you would never reach the end of it. God's mercy towards us is infinite, inexhaustible. We can always rely on it. That's what Ezra knew. He knew that he could throw himself on God's mercy. He knew that was his only hope. His only hope in face of this devastating situation was to throw himself on the mercy of God. But he also knew that that was his best hope because God's mercy never runs out. You know, uh, preachers have the same problem that advertisers do. See, have you ever seen a commercial and you really like the commercial and you think, oh, that was really funny or what a great commercial. And somebody says, oh, what was it for? And you say, oh yeah, I don't know the product. I just remember enjoying the commercial. Well, preachers sometimes use illustrations and sometimes people will tell me, oh, I love that illustration. And I say, well, what, did, what did it mean? It's, I, I don't know. I just liked your story. What a great story. So, so, so here's my hope this morning. Here, my hope is that you not remember just that I tore my shirt and shaved on stage, but that you remember why. That you remember that that was a, a symbol of the mourning that Ezra exhibited because of the seriousness of sin in our world. Ezra Ezra reacted to that in his community. He saw it and he grieved. And it opened up a path for others to grieve and ultimately to turn towards God in complete humility and repentance. Think about what Ezra knew about God. He had some of the Old Testament. And think about what we know of God. Ezra knew of God's mercy We have seen God's mercy in flesh. We have heard that God not only forgives and is merciful, but he's willing to take on the consequences for sin on himself, that he experiences human suffering and brokenness and takes it on so that God can see us with mercy. How much more than Ezra should we Be confident in God's mercy to us. So as we wrap up this morning, uh, we're going to be singing some songs about God's mercy. We're going to be singing of the uh, price that Jesus paid. We're going to be singing how our strength is small 
how sin leaves this brokenness upon us. And yet because of what Jesus does, his work pays the price for everything that we've done. Ezra demonstrated two really important truths for us this morning. First of all, he reminded us that this world is broken beyond repair by sin. But he also reminded us that God's mercy is bigger than any of the brokenness we see before us. So my hope for you this morning is that you would remember this uh, Sunday, not as the Sunday that I tore my shirt and shaved on stage, but as the Sunday that you saw a graphic reminder that our God is a mountain of mercy.